to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McGill, Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 216 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. This is now the fourth episode of 2019, and uh, we're on a little bit of a pattern. We got a first-time guest, and then we got back uh, somebody who hadn't been here in a long time. Another first-time guest, and uh, now we're back to really long time. Uh, yeah. my, my guest's last appearance, um, we actually made a quick joke in the course of the show that uh, he was making a second appearance inside of six months. And we were talking about how like people might start saying things and whatnot. And then we went and flipped that script on its head by leaving him on the sidelines for a good five years. And, and, and leaving him on the sidelines having just spoken about such a forgettable movie. Yeah, again, how dare you? I, you know, like it's it's not like I could have sent you off talking about boiling or something, or, or sent you off talking about like the social network. No, no, no. We got him on talking about such a throwaway movie uh, that we'll talk about it in a moment because we'll bring it up during Know Your Enemy. But we are happy to have him back. We are happy that uh, the things are going well for him. Uh, he is the voice behind the Film Stage podcast. He writes there a few times as well. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's, he's man about town in D.C. He knows all the ways to get around the protests and, uh, you know, be able to get your Tuesday special on time and get right back to your desk in time for the 1 o'clock meeting. Our guest is, as I said, a, the host of the Film Stage podcast. We're across the wire to Washington, D.C., speaking to the man, the myth, the legend, Brian J. Rowan is here. How are you, Brian J. Rowan? What is up? I'm doing great. Happy to be back. I think it's actually, I'm looking at the IMDb page for the last movie we spoke about. It says it came out in March of 2013. Sounds so it's right. like almost six years. Yep. Yep. I, I, you know what? I'm going to, for the show notes of this episode, I'm going to like write about what was going on in the world in March, <laughs> in March of 2013. On episode 216, we will be discussing High Flying Bird and turning the record over to play the other side. First, we need to learn more about Brian. This is Know Your Enemy. Not to pat myself on the back, though, but I will admit, in preparing Know Your Enemy, I did go back and listen to that show, where I dropped in all of the Backstreet Boys songs. <laughs> that, that was some good listening, let me tell you. That, those are jokes that hold up. Brian first appeared on episode 63, where we talked about The Dark Knight Rises. We learned that the first film he saw in a theater was Jurassic Park. The last movie he'd seen at the time was Win-Win. The worst film he'd ever seen was Remember Me. The unseen classic or essential was Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Did you see it? Nope. Still haven't seen it. <laughs> Six years, dude. And the film he wished he made was The Tree of Life. Next, he returned on episode 81 to discuss the opus that is the incredible Burt Wonderstone. Steve Carell. <laughs> I looked this up. Do you remember that Jim Carrey is in that movie? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I remember that he's like the pseudo Chris Angel. Uh, I think I'd forgotten that Olivia Wilde was in it. Who's there's a he has a crony. Is it? Is it I Steve only Buscemi? remembered. I only remembered that Steve Carell was in it. And yeah, Steve Buscemi is in it. Jim Steve Carrey, like, which Steve Buscemi is like the Roy to his Siegfried. That I had totally yeah. forgotten. Yeah. That was crazy. And then, like, yeah, Alan Arkin is the older guy who helps him. Apparently, Jay Moore is in this movie. Like, I, this is... 
I kind of want to watch crazy. that. Be honest. Anyway, on that episode, exists. we learned the film he digs that nobody else does is Battle of Los Angeles. The film that everybody else likes that he does not is Cloud Atlas. The last movie to make him cry at the time was Les Mis. The, in the movie of his life, he wants to be played by Michael Fassbender, and the movie he was watching next was Rust and Bone. So it's time, sir, for round three. Interpret this question any way you wish, but what was the movie to make your love of film turn a corner? All right. Uh, I have two answers for this. I'm going to go through them both. Uh, the first is The Thin Red Line. It's the movie that uh, first turned me on to Terrence Malick. The first movie that like really moved me emotionally and the first movie where like, I had to argue for it being a masterpiece against a bunch of people who said it's boring and slow, which would become a theme in my life. So <laughs> that, was, that was the first one. And then the second one, I think, is The, um, the Fountain, which is a movie that, again, I had to like argue in its favor vehemently. And it was on the cusp of me having just really started to get into the French New Wave and seeing, like, the true weird non-linear strangeness that cinema could be and again like just having to tell everyone who hated it that it was good and having to keep my mind while trying to do that so do you enjoy being in that position no i don't i wish everyone <laughs> could love these great movies immediately like i do it's um it's really hard and really alienating because there comes a point where if someone just keeps saying, I don't know, it was boring. And I'm like, but why was it boring? What didn't you engage in it? Like, what, like, what is the thing? And I just, it's hard not to, in that moment, turn into, like, the caricature of an elitist snob who's just like, that's because you're too dumb. I know people who are antagonistic by nature who, not like, I don't think that they're contrarian exactly because mm -hmm. I really have no time for people who are contrarian and I can usually smell it on them. Um, but I do know people who kind of enjoy a good fight those are movies especially the fountain like i think mm -hmm. I, i'm pretty sure everybody who's into movies has come around on the thin red line people who aren't into film aren't gonna dig it especially that year because people were like why isn't the saving private ryan um <laughs> yeah for, for starters including me like i mean well that's what that's why i watched it initially i was like you know oh it's it's i, I love saving private ryan here's another like world war ii movie and I watched it, and I was like, this isn't Saving Private Ryan. This is so much better. Well, and that's the thing. I, I didn't get it at first. I was like, what what is this crap? I had to watch it again and again and again to really come around on it. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I wasn't sure if, if you know, you love those because they are two movies that uh, epitomize you taking the opposite position. To go back in time, uh, me loving Battle Los Angeles, a movie that I legitimately watched maybe a month ago just to be like, was I crazy back then? And I still enjoyed it. That's easier to talk to people about because I don't have to, like, give a lot of deep philosophical, emotional reasons why I like it. Got it. It's it's hard to talk to someone who, like, refuses to look at film in that way. So it's always more interesting if I, like, if I like a low-class movie and can argue with people who have also, you know, more blunt tastes, or if I hate something that's really high-class and can really argue with people about that. What was your first date movie? So this is a this is a tough question um, because you know when I was in middle school, you know you'd go on like group dates. Yes. And so well, I well, saw. Sorry, let let us be clear here. 
one went on group dates. I did not. Okay, well, I, you know, the, uh, the, the, Mac Daddy, say, like, preteen Lothario yes. that I was. Right. Um, yeah, me and my friends, you know, it would be like the four guys would invite, like, the group of four girls, and we'd all go together, and we'd sit, like, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. And nothing made any sense, and everything was terrible. So we went to a bunch of movies in that way, and the only one that I really remember from, like, way far back was Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very distinct memory of going to see that movie with a large group of people and sitting in Marley Station Mall and, like, watching that film. And and I liking it, and I'm still one of the few people who really stands up hard for that movie. Okay. But um, the other one that might count, it would be closer. <laughs> we we should remind people that he is a now married father of a young child who's trying to extract whether or not a date counts. I was in high school. I was now able to uh, drive. So Ooh. I um a girl a girl asked me like you know you really like movies like is there a movie you want to go see and I was like yeah I'm really looking forward to going <laughs> out and seeing closer, closer this weekend. <laughs> And she said, oh, that looks really good. Can uh, I come? And this would be the first but not the last time this would ever happen to me where I'd say, oh, yeah, you should totally come and see Closer with me or, like, whatever movie in the future. Right. And so we go and we watch it, and it's clearly like a horror show of just people ripping each other's souls out through their hearts. And and so afterwards we go to a coffee shop and we're, we're drinking our, our drinks and she says, you know, that movie was really good, but it seemed kind of like intense for a date movie. And I looked at her <laughs> in a way that I guess was with such shock and lack of comprehension that she said, not like this is a date. And I was like, oh, I mean, no. Yeah. What? Oh, my God. What What was this woman's name? I want to give her a hug. Uh, her name was uh, Jen. So Jen. sorry. Sorry, Jen. Sorry, um, Jen. <laughs> Um, but again, this happened to me in college, too, because people would be like, Brian, what are you doing this weekend? And I'd say, I'm going to go see, I don't know, The Lives of Others or the remake of Funny Games. And they'd be like, ooh, can, like, can I come? Right. And right. I, I did. And then they would be upset with me. And there yeah. was one time that like two girls came with me, and then they said, I can't believe you took us to see that movie. And I said, I didn't take you. You tagged along. <laughs> This is, oh, this is awesome. Seriously, I wish we could talk about this all night. Uh, however, we do have another movie to talk about that you you know would invite a girl over to watch all of and then make no move. Um, I have one word for you. The yes. word is elephant. <laughs> oh, oh, I believe you. I, like if it wasn't for if if anybody else tried to lay that one on me, I wouldn't believe them. I totally believe you did that. Um, <laughs> dear God, Brian I'm J. Rowan. So sorry what... to everyone who ever had an attraction to me. <laughs> What movie quote would be your epitaph? My epitaph would be um, "Deserves got nothing to do with it." <laughs> Ooh, okay. That's a, that's a that's a thing. I mean, so for those who do not know, that was uh, Clint Eastwood. That's yes. uh, that's the unforgiven. unforgiven. Yeah. You know, so first of all, that's a good one. Thank you. I, I could totally and 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 very and very Rowan. Uh, as much as anything is very Rowan. Um, the worm has turned for me on Clint. I was, I, I really dug Clint for a while there. And I, I don't know if it's just what happens when artists turn really old 
Uh, but man, does he seem to lose his way? Like, I almost can't believe he's the same guy who made Unforgiven. I heard the mule was good, but I didn't see it, so I have no proof of that. But... I've heard it's bananas. Like, I've heard it's good in a, in a you need to see this to believe it kind of way. Well, it's always good when an older an older no, director can do cause, that cause too, it's, right? Cause it's not deliberate, right? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it is. Like, yeah. that's the thing. Like, I went and saw Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. And I was like, damn, Marty still got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah okay. So, yes, yeah, so it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's certainly not a go, getting old thing. Um but, I mean, it's weird because you think about it, and that was a movie – like, that, that, that's actually a pretty fitting epitaph because it's a movie that is clearly made by somebody who's older and has regret by something he did in his past. Like, it was kind of seen as Clint's uh, owning, uh, atoning, or apologizing for the ways and the attitudes of his cowboy classics, right? Right. And then, meanwhile, he'd go on to make another – you know, 25 years worth of movies that were kind of all over the map in terms of what they wanted to own, what they wanted to atone for and how much of a shit they gave in, in decreasing quantities <laughs> as time went on. So, um, but Hey, well, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with that quote. Um, <laughs> last but not least, and I do apologize cause I'm pretty sure these questions are completely out of order today. Uh, what was the last film to leave you speechless? Um, that would be mother by Darren Aronofsky. Oh my God. Uh, leave you speechless in which way exactly? You're going to have to qualify that. All the ways. <laughs> it's, uh, there were a lot of ways that movie left me speechless because uh, the last 20 minutes of that movie are a weird, I don't know, funhouse ride type of thing. And so I just like was jawing the floor. Also, the choice of a song to end the movie was so zany. Yeah. You just chose this song. Like, this is the song you chose. Yeah. It's... It was it was like too much, and I loved that movie. It was like in my top ten of that year, but I just, I there was there was there was too much to think about and to feel and to to grapple with. That is a good answer to that. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I I'm with you. By the way, that that is a movie. I know I've gone back to it at least once. It lulls you in. Like it seems so normal. When it mm -hmm. starts, it seems like, well, you know, if you don't count the fact that you get that little chime when the exclamation point shows up on the on the title card, you know, so it says mother and then it adds an exclamation with a little ding. So yeah. if you don't know what you're getting into at that point. That should be a warning sign right there. Um, but then it's like when you actually get to like the house and when you get to to Javier and Jen and and, and Harris and all of them, it seems so normal at the beginning it seemed just so sweet and look this may december romance thing that's kind of weird and he's got a fan and it's kind of weird but it's not weird in a really weird way and then it just goes sideways so quick the last 20 minutes of that movie are like children of men that's for damn sure oh yeah and... it just it becomes the, the the battle scene from children of men yeah plus a bunch of other shit you're watching the movie and you're like Okay, so this is like a, a, a domestic drama with a little bit of like a thriller element. And then it's just like, oh no, this is an allegory for literally everything in the entirety of human history. Like, yeah. this is... Yeah, that is, that, you know, I, I, I know I wrote about that movie. I couldn't tell you what I wrote about that movie. And I know it took me a few days. Uh, I, um, I, I almost wanted to I, call back to the projection booth and go, just run it again. Just, I, that, I need to just start it over. I can't remember everything that I wrote for it, but I do know that, like, the log line for the essay I wrote about it was, like, 
the wail of like a blood drenched street preacher holding a knife. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that about sums that up. That's for sure. And and yeah, that is a movie yeah. that would leave a lot of people speechless. I am darn sure. I am not surprised at all that that was a movie that got like an F cinema score because a lot of people <laughs> were caught off guard with that thing. Um, there we go. That's more about Brian J. Ron. We'll try and bring him back sometime before six years go by. I, I think I need to just hand you a on the house card kind of things that they hand out in Vegas. Like when you show up, you're a, you're a frequent uh, you're a frequent customer. You can just show up, flash the card, and you get a free brunch. So my uh, my cousin who has a very bad gambling problem has a lot of those cards. There we go. <laughs> Um, but we have a movie to talk about. We're uh, we're going back to Netflix uh, after uh, last episode where we talked about Velvet Budsaw. It is time to talk about High Flying Bird. It's the new slang right after this. There's a high flying bird flying way up in the sky. And I wonder if she looks down as she goes on by. Well, she's flying so free. High Flying Bird is directed by Steven Soderbergh. It's written by Terrell Alvin McCranny. It stars Andre Holland, Zazie Beetz, Kyle McLaughlin, Sanja Song, Zachary Quinto, and Melvin Gregg. Holland plays Ray Burke, pro sports agent who represents the number one overall draft pick in the NBA draft, a kid named Eric Scott. That's, uh... That's Melvin Gregg. There's just one problem. The NBA is undergoing a lockout, and Scott isn't getting paid, which means Burke isn't getting paid, which means times are tough. In the face of this, Burke and his assistant Sam, that's as he beats, goes through, go through all sorts of hoops, pardon the pun, to change their stars. They consider every tool in the box, which are considerable in modern pro sports, in the hopes of changing the story and forcing one side or the other to move in a situation that betters them, if not always their client. High Flying Bird is inside. Way, way, way inside. This is a basketball movie where a player at the center of it almost never handles a ball, and no game footage is ever seen. A game is being played, but it's not one decided by perimeter shooting or ball protection. This is a game of power, legacy, and brand. So, for the first time, you actually have two questions off the top of this. Pop quiz, hot shot. Number one, a simple yes or no question. Are you a Hoops fan? I am not. Okay. Which leads me to question number two. Did you catch anything or everything that was going on? It was it was weird for me first beginning because I hadn't seen this movie until uh, last night. And I probably wouldn't have seen it for a longer time if you hadn't invited me onto this podcast. Because Welcome? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Um, it's not time for the ratings yet, but I would say that uh, okay. I enjoyed this movie in All a general right. sense. It was weird because both like I you know, heard about it and people were saying it was really good and it's Steven Soderbergh and everything like that. And Andre Holland is great, obviously. And Bill Duke is in it, and I love that man. But like... There wasn't really a lot of there there for me. So I, I was like, yeah, that's not something that I need to see. Like, I could just watch some Mad Men or I could, like, do anything else with my time. Because I'm just, like, fundamentally bored by basketball and um, most professional sports. Okay. And so the idea of, like, a sport agent, you know, having trouble sport agenting and having to, you know, sport agent his soul out in order to, to you know, sport agent again was really just not something I cared about. (laughs) 
so it was it was weird sitting down for this movie and seeing all these people talking so passionately about this game at first until the movie kind of really starts to show its hand as to what it's about beyond what it's just its plot is about if that makes any sense it does now i am i'm kind of the opposite of you because i am I'm very much a sports fan, and uh, I, you know, I, I think if you ask anybody, they would certainly know that I'm a baseball fan. But I think a lot of people don't know that I'm a very, very deep basketball fan as well, and not just a fan of my own team, but a fan of the game and the league, and increasingly interested by how the league is changing as a business as time goes on. So a lot of this was very much in my sweet spot, to be entirely honest, to to listen to a very 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 talky movie about the ins and outs of a, first of all just a league in lockout because that that's kind of its own circle that 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 pro sports has to navigate that number one but number two as somebody who is more and more interested by how these players are now taking control of their own story and their own brand and business and it's like you know they they use the term over and on over and over the game within the game um i didn't expect this so i kind of had to sit up and pay attention to keep up with everything so that's why i ask you is you know and, and I, I didn't know if you were a hoops fan or not if somebody is not um a basketball fan if they're not a fan of pro sports because i think if you're a pro sports fan you can probably extrapolate a lot of the business onto this but I wonder if you, if that's not your 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 thing, if this is going to be interesting at all. But you're saying is that even with all that, this still kind of worked for you. Even at the end of the day, like it's it's one of those things where the movie has a wider social message that it's trying to get across, um, which we can we can get into more later. But like, it's it's weird for me to see such like a revolutionary concept put onto like a professional sport. Um, even though I am keenly aware, you know, of of all the problems that professional athletes can can deal with, between you know, you get like 12 years to like make your money, and then you're like 32, and then you can't work anymore, mm-hmm. and you have to figure out what to do. It's weirdly uh, one of the reasons why I watched the first couple episodes of Ballers, starring uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson on HBO, because <laughs> I. I found it to be an interesting thing about like this guy who is used to be a professional athlete who is now a money manager for, for professional athletes and how it delved into like the economic reality that they faced. Clearly not what the show was primarily concerned in, but it was still an interesting idea to me. And so in this they had similar things, but that's more of my interest in like the the behind the scenes of like the industry, which is lucky because like this movie isn't really about like the game it's as the movie says about the game on top of the game Mm -hmm. Uh, but like it's still it was still so hard for me to be invested in this like revolutionary change because there's a part of me that's like but it's basketball and like (laughs) even though i know that's probably like a billion dollar industry it's just it's so weird to me that that's even a reality that i had trouble navigating around it but what's weird to me and what i think is actually stranger is that i think that if you love basketball you'll find even less to enjoy in this movie because it's so critical of 
the league and the, the mechanisms and the culture. You know, yeah, if you're a fan of the game at its essence, and if you're a fan of your team with blind loyalty, and you just, you know, you want your colors to win championships, and you can't understand why that player wants out or why that player wants more money or why these millionaires are arguing with these billionaires with a B um, you're you're not going to find a whole lot in this movie to latch onto as I said off the top of the show this is a movie where almost nobody handles a ball and mm. you know there there are no, there, there's no pro games there's a bit of a scrimmage and that's it and that's you know when you see a movie whose poster is a take on the NBA logo, you're thinking, well, I'm getting into, you know, Blue Chips, or I'm getting into Hoosiers, or I'm getting into Above the Rim, or one of those movies. There's not a whole lot of iconic basketball movies. Figured that out in the in the run-up to this show. It's kind of like <laughs> Hoop Dreams, He Got Game, and that's about it. Um, <laughs> send your letters. Um, but love and Basketball? Love I don't know, basketball that might be more about I love. love that. I love that movie. Um but it's you want a man it's nay, stop it now i mean <laughs> this this is the thing is there you know i was on another show one time um and talking to somebody who's not really a sports fan and said uh the, the knock that i constantly hear as a fan of film when i talk to fans of sports is the absence of narrative and i said bullshit because in a let's just say a basketball game as a starter you have 10 players on the court who have all their own thing going on at any given moment. That's 10 narratives. You have two teams. That's two more narratives. You have a whole season. That's a 13th narrative. All circles within circles. This is some Inception shit that goes on well away from whether or not that player makes that last three-pointer to win the game. So I'm... I'm interested in this, and I'm interested in the backroom machinations that make these things go. Um, but you're right. Like, I mean, I think I'm the outlier on this and not the rule. I can't think of too many Hoops fans that are going to really dig this movie. Yeah, like, my, my cousins are the, the kind of go-to people in my head when it comes to sports. Like, they love sports. They, they're all about sports. They they have a, a half-court, you know, concrete built in their backyard. And um, I just like I, I imagine them sitting down to watch this and just being uh, bored and confused, <laughs> and it's it's kind of weird. But like, I was watching it and I was into it because Andre Holland is like great at holding the camera or the mm -hmm. iPhone, as it were. Um, yeah. And you know, Soderbergh's got style to spare, and uh, Zazie Beetz is a great performer. Like, everyone in this movie is is fantastic, and the movie is quite visually, I won't say arresting, but uh, maybe, like, you know, holding for questioning. It's um, Yeah. That was clever. That was uh, good. Thank you. How, how, long, and, how long were you working on that? It literally just came to me. Uh, right. My superpower is fantastic uh, analogies and metaphors. I, I am it, not worthy. Please continue. This never comes in handy in my real life. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm a podcaster. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I was able to, to kind of follow along until I found the rhythm and the groove and the bits of it that made me interested. But I think that um, this is such a small production. Uh, I think that maybe that holds it back from feeling truly as revolutionary as it wants to be. It's kind of weird to me how it ends 
just in like a really underlining its point in kind of a strange way to the point that it almost felt like a trailer for a book. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you know, now, now you're trying to give away the ending of the movie. Um, but <laughs> there's a book. <laughs> there is a book. And, and, you know, again, if you want to talk about being on brand for me, a Soderbergh movie about basketball that ends with a book. Oh, boy. I might as well just call it <laughs> Ryan McNeil, the movie. Um, you, you are know, fun at parties. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, so you brought them up. So I kind of want to talk about Andre Holland and Zazie Beetz because um, they're they're the two that are in pretty much every scene of this movie. And they are newer on the scene. Like, they don't have a huge history behind them. Um, and yet, they're both people who, anytime they're in a project, I am automatically interested. Um, Andre Holland people would probably most notably know from the third act of Moonlight. Um, mm -hmm. Another Steven Soderbergh project, if you watched either of the two seasons of The Nick, he was on that. And he has a way of... He can kind of, like, just liquefy you by looking at the camera lens. He has such an expressive face. He has such a way of delivering dialogue. And he's... If there is a polar opposite in terms of sports agent to like jerry Maguire. it's him this is a guy who when he when his character feels himself getting worked up he stops he stops speaking and just basically hits reset within himself and i saw that and i was just floored i do not have the capacity to do that even if i wanted to <laughs> so to see him continually do that and know why immediately was just incredible to watch and there's sometimes where he is completely in control in, in control of the conversation there's other times where he's getting his ass handed to him and to look at him you never know exactly which position he's in because he just doesn't show it which is not to say that he doesn't emote he does he's just always yeah. so collected that it's it's incredible to see this guy in a room there was like the opening scene really is is the Andre show. It's just uh, oh my god, like him sitting at that restaurant table berating this like rookie pick who hasn't even gotten a chance to play yet. Yep. And is already trying to like live the lifestyle and just to get like an insane loan and and him asking a question and then immediately saying that was rhetorical cuz he knew the guy was going to try to answer. <laughs> just Things like that. Like, he, he just comes off as, like, a consummate professional. He inhabits the role so well. And it's his energy that really keeps you going through every, like, tick and turn of this. It's a movie that can at times play a little bit like an episode of The West Wing. Yeah. Where you know, most of the dialogue in The West Wing wasn't for character. It was to explicate these ideas. It, it is, at its heart, like a show that has very little interest in its characters, and this movie has that as well. It does give like a tragic backstory and, you know, a hint at some romance and like, you know, the, the few background details for everyone. Um, but it really is like it's a movie that has a point of view and wants to get it across, which is also a thing that sort of kept me on the outside of Moonlight because it does feel like it's more about like making the point than really getting to know the characters, which is strange, especially in Moonlight, because it's all about this one character. Hmm. 
but I could like feel that layer of I have something to say kind of holding me back. And uh, but this movie I think does a better job at balancing that out. Um, his See, his interactions with everyone, especially uh, Sanja Son as uh, the yeah. the player rep, mm-hmm. was just uh, every time they're together, it was so awesome. Yeah. See, it's funny because you mentioned Moonlight, which I mean, it's it's an apt. Uh, comparison to this film because you have Andre Holland in both movies and you have the the same screenwriter in both movies in uh, Terrell Alvin McCranny. Um, but these could not be two more polar opposites for me because Moonlight for me was very much speaking to my heart, whereas this movie was just basically playing a tap dance on my head and just, you know, lighting up all these different ideas and theories and whatnot and making me listen while Moonlight was daring me not to watch. Um, Zazie Beats though in this movie to kind of play the other side of the coin of these two co-leads um, she's another actor who's always interested in things she is of people she's probably most known these days for playing Van on Atlanta um, and, mm-hmm. and if you don't watch Atlanta first of all if you don't watch Atlanta I have no time for you but if you sure, don't watch Atlanta yeah exactly if, if you don't watch Atlanta she's um, Donald Lover's ex um, who kind of drifts in and out of the plot. In season two, she wasn't around nearly as much because she was off filming Deadpool, and that's kind of right right around her. But every time the story turns to her in Atlanta, things get a lot more interesting because she's got her own shit to deal with on top of these jokers who are trying to make it as rappers. Um, in this movie, speaking about her own things that she's trying to deal with, we're watching, you know, she is the one who's who's the up-and-comer she's she's his assistant she's you know she's she has said that she basically had her pick of the litter when it came to jobs and she went for this job to work with this person because she thought she had something to learn she's an she's a person who's clearly new to this business and game she's not like not to say that she's a babe in the woods because she she understands everything implicitly but you can see already, you know, for however long she's been in this business at this firm, that she is planning two and three and four moves ahead because she has seen that is the way you need to play this game. And it's fascinating to watch whether she's with Sam or whether she's with Eric or whether she's with um, the player rep whose character name just dropped out of my head. She's like she's listening and making her moves all at once. And it's and she puts it all in like her entire posture and her face and every word that she says seems so calculated. It's amazing to see what I love about her and Holland as a, as a pair is they both have really expressive eyes and she has this knack of putting on her face, a, an expression that you can't entirely read. Like you're not sure if she's judging you or empathizing with you or calculating her next move. And, and it's, you just, cannot look away from the expression she has on her face and it's it's incredible to see her move in and out of this world of millionaires and billionaires and so clearly be learning it at every step i mean this movie basically given how how talk heavy it is um and how much like non-action is going on you need people who can command the camera with a look and um andre holland does that in in a ways that i've never seen him allowed to before mm-hmm. um in in moonlight he's a extremely charming like magnetic 
person, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a reason that gif of him blowing smoke into the camera still exists. And in this movie, though, he's given the opportunity to really exercise his, uh, his screw you face. Yeah. To really, like, you know, cock his head to the side and fix someone with a look that basically says, like, I wish you would die right now. <laughs> and he is super good at that. Uh, the same thing uh, with Sazi Beats. I mean, Bill Duke, the camera just loves his face because there's so much stuff going on with it. And when he talks, everything moves and his eyes are strange. You know, anyone who's seen Predator knows what I'm talking about. Anyone who's seen <laughs> Mandy also knows what I'm talking about. Like... Bill Duke's just got a face. And so this movie has a bunch of faces, and it's kind of t to the point that Zachary Quinto's character has the least face. Yeah. Even Kyle MacLachlan, you know, has, has more of a face in this movie than Zachary Quinto, because Zachary Quinto is just, like, the guy who doesn't believe in anything. Well, he's sort of, the weird thing about this movie is it brings in Zachary Quinto for this movie, but then it leaves him in shadow. For most of it, like he's he's in this huge office that's bright, you know, New York morning that's got him very backlit. You can clearly tell it's him, but it's like it's not really interested in in him uh, to, to, to play Spock in an office. So I don't yeah. entirely know why they brought him in. I mean, he's got a voice. He's yeah, like he was wasn't he was in margin call, right? Wasn't he? Yes, he was like he's he's good at that kind of like a suit that cuts through the noise yes. but it's it's um it is it was strange i'm like i'm surprised we're not giving him a little more to do i think he's seated the whole through time every every moment of this movie he did no, not maybe, have to stand once maybe he busted a knee or something the day of the shoot and he's like sorry i you know i want to be here but uh can, can i sit down um you know I, I gotta i gotta ask is this movie too talky i don't think that that's possible no, um, it's always possible I think this one comes close, but I don't think that there's any other way for things to happen. Um, yeah. I think that maybe when the the gears of, I will call it the heist, start turning, we could have benefited from some more like glimpses outside of this like seven-person bubble that we're living in. Yeah. But again, I don't know if that was a concern of cost or a concern of style. It might have been weird to suddenly do one of those animated, like, jumps into the internet and let's just watch Twitter scroll for a bit with a hashtag popping up. But well, it, for it, a moment or two, we do go to the talking heads on TV. And I mean, if sports is bad for any one thing, it's the cottage industry that it has created of talking heads. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that sports television is far more analysis than it is actual athletics these days, um, oh, yeah. over, over several channels, um, to say, I nothing mean, of, say nothing of radio. Like I understand the games, like, even though I'm not a huge fan of basketball or football or hockey, like if I'm at a game or if I'm in a room of people who like that game, I can get into it. I understand all the rules. I know the basics of like a good play and like how to call one. And so like I can chameleon myself into the situation, but like, I don't like, I'm not just going to sit for three hours and listen to people talk about like up and comers. And it's just so, it's so weird. It's so weird to me, but I think that this movie might've benefited from a little more of that because again, it's every, every building seems like they're shooting in it 
an hour before everyone comes in to actually do work in those offices. Which may very well um, be. Yeah, and that's possible. Like, it's it's totally possible that that's how they were, like, running gun shooting this. I think I read that the total shooting time of this movie was, like, 19 days. I mean, it cost two million bucks. Which, like, that that's, that's... the that, that's the catering on <laughs> on Wonder Woman, right? Um yeah, I mean that's that's interesting because that at once seems like a lot of money for this movie, but also not a lot of money for this movie. <laughs> no, no. If if one of these players was making two million, they would be you know a, a lunchbox guy in the NBA. If mm-hmm. making two million a year, let alone two million for an entire production. I think that it might have helped if it had leaned in almost a little more about how exploitive the league is. I yeah. think that. Having it set during the lockout is almost not to its benefit because you have these people who are worried about their money. They're worried about whether they're going to be able to play. I think it would almost be more interesting if they were playing and so the league was at the full height of its power and they were firmly entwined in it. And then that's when all these questions of like ownership of self come in because, you know, they're talking about like, you know... <laughs> No one can profit off of your image because you're a player in the NBA. And it's like, so what? I can't, like, post a selfie without it getting vetted by a lawyer? Like, those are interesting questions. And I understand the point of the lockout storyline and and why that's important to every literally everything that happens in the movie. But I feel like it gives a kind of remove to, like, the power of the league. Well, that is where... I actually really started to get interested because I mean the pro sports in 2019 is nothing like it was nine years ago. I mean, even shit, even, you know, we were joking before about how your last appearance on the show was 2013. Even back then the pro sports is not what it is now. Social media is so much bigger in so many more ways and can cause so many other ripples, which do in pro sports. There is this whole plot thread about a Twitter feud between these two players on the same team. And the crazy thing is that happens. Like not even just players on opposing teams getting into it on Twitter where you're watching, you know, multimillionaire living gods to in, in some circles having a Twitter fight. Which is just you never want to see anyone have a Twitter fight. Which is the strangest thing ever. You see, you know, having it be players who are on the same side is surreal in its own right, and yet it is what happens. And these guys build a brand, and these guys show their play and show what they're about, and all of that is not the kind of movie you could have told five, six, seven years ago. To say nothing of the fact that the one thing I must really tip my hat towards this movie is the fact that it hangs its entire crux on a rookie is pretty darn important because there's these interstitials that keep coming up with players like Carl Anthony Towns and Reggie Jackson and Donovan Mitchell, who are all young players and young stars in the NBA, but are not far removed from their rookie contracts, and it's them talking about being rookies in the NBA. And the thing that we continue to forget, you know, when you were mentioning earlier on about how this is a business where you're done in your mid-30s and you got to figure out what the next move is going to be for the rest of your life, 
mm-hmm. is this is a business where players enter into it at anywhere between as young as 19 and as old, like you are considered coming into the league as old if you come in at 23, which is insane. I, I think about who I was at 23 or certainly who I was at 19 and thinking about making life changing decisions. And I'd be like, get the keys away from that idiot, you know? <laughs> so to hear, to hear the way that Ray constantly talks to Eric, it's like, yeah, he, you know, I, I say idiot just in the way that every 19 and 20 year old is an, is an inherent idiot, regardless, regardless of book smart, book smart or street smart there are, they're still idiots to a certain degree. He's like, no, 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 no. Grownups are talking. I know you want to control what is going to happen, but you really need to listen to me because you're a kid. And that is pro sports, you know? Baseball, um, baseball kind of hits the snooze on when players go professional, but football, basketball, hockey, they're going in basically at age 20 and just thrown into their lives. And it's, it's amazing that some of these guys last as long as they do. Well, yes, but I mean, like, you know, I went to a public university that uh, they pull people from for sports and it's one of those things where it's like yeah most of these guys don't graduate college because like they can't take the time to graduate college right. first of all so glad that you pointed out that all those people who were interviewed were real um yeah. oh, you didn't know that part i did not no i didn't know <laughs> and i don't watch basketball so course, i was I'm... like so I, I was like i assume that these are testimonials that are meant to reflect reality but i don't know if they're like scripted i don't know who these people are i was like <laughs> reggie jackson sounds familiar but wasn't he a, ba- a baseball player same name different guy and yeah, so that was that's one of my that's a problem that I had. Um, so it it was interesting seeing that, and it did kind of, it does tip its hand as to like what the movie is really going to be about. Um, it, it it's it's super weird. I remember going to a, a professional soccer game, uh, football for people in the rest of the world, and I, I was sitting in the stands, and it was the first time that I realized like holy shit, everyone on this team is younger than me. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's uh, it was interesting seeing this movie, you know, because this this kid has never played before on like a professional team, and it was interesting to me as someone again who doesn't really follow sports, uh, especially not like the personal lives of these people. Um, that the Twitter feud thing is the type of thing that could really happen, and does, and has. A- this whole <laughs> season has been littered with this. This is that's the type of thing where like I just have to take it on faith that that's what happens yep. because I have no background in that. So I was like, you know, this seems super dumb, but I honestly believe that this would happen. Like <laughs> I've seen film critics act this way and they don't have like the power and the money that these people do. Yeah. And if the internet's taught us anything, it's that the more power and money you have, the the worse your judgment is when it comes to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> this is very, very true. Um, we could be talking about this movie for a long time, but uh, we do have other things to talk about. Um, I, I think like, uh, if you're if you're if you want the short and skinny version of this, I think I am coming down really really uh, heavy on this movie and saying this is this is a fantastic piece of work, but I don't know if people are going to dig it. Rowan seems to think it's okay, and he really doesn't know who would dig it. I literally don't know who this movie is for. I read a bunch <laughs> of very positive reviews, but those seemed to be like. Um reviews that are people who are like oh my god we have another steven soderbergh movie uh, right. as well as um 
the the whole you know hey uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney has a new movie that he wrote and uh, Andre Holland's in it so yeah. like and Zazie Beetz you know, yeah people yeah people uh, who are fans of the people who made this movie have really spoken up and been and been very effusive but there's not a whole lot of oh my god you need to see this movie. Right. Like, I, I'm not, like, going to a bar or walking into work and having people, like, people at my office always, they know that I work as a film critic in, like, the Moonlight. And um, so they'll always say, like, hey, did you moonlight. see this? Like, have you seen this? And I have not heard a single human being out in the real world, in nature, like, breathe the words high-flying bird. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I mean, for, you know, for me, I got to think about, like, the Venn diagram of this movie, which is people who like basketball people who like film and people who like really talky heady backroom mechanics movies and i, I right. guess it's like, I, are you i think are you I, interested in the contractual negotiations of the nba <laughs> are you interested where, in where do you stand you know, on the social contract um <laughs> like the it's like a venn diagram that has four circles and Right in the middle, there's like a part where three people can sit, and that's who this movie's for. <laughs> that's about right. Um, we rate here. Well, we're going to get to the rating in a minute. We do end every review here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible you could take away from this movie and keep. Uh, Brian J. Rowan, what would be your souvenir from High Flying Bird? I would like the Moondog anamorphic lens for the iPhone 8, please. Yeah, no shit. This, this movie has no right to look as good as it does. No, it does not. Uh, speaking of things that weren't around in 2013, um, when you consider this now, you know, we, we need to qualify that when movies say that they're shot on an iPhone, they're really using the chip. They couple a whole bunch of extra hardware and gizmos and doodads to yeah. the phone. Um, but it's to- interesting. I, I saw some behind the scenes stills and clearly like they have a rig. Clearly, I you know, I went looking for the lens and it, it might be like 200 bucks. That's it. Um yeah, I mean, if I found the right one, God only knows, they might have one that's a lot more expensive. But, like, he was he was talking about how, like, he loves what you can do with an iPhone because, A, you can... And he also uses, like, an app to control the phone from another yes. device. Oh, yeah. Um, but so he was like, it's great because, like, I can Velcro it to a wall and get a shot that's impossible. Yeah. And I was watching this movie, and I'm like, yeah, I believe that none of this is sets, that none of these were breakaway walls, that, like, he legitimately at some point like velcroed his phone to like the side of a shower right next to the shower head yes um well for me the takeaway is actually just a moment that i love because i think it happens to me weekly um there is a moment where uh ray burke is having a conversation with uh with myra sanjay son who is the player rep and she is trying to speak about one of the um I don't know if it's the commissioner or the deputy commissioner, but she's trying to speak about him in, in a capacity that conveys this man is evil. And she refers to him as the dark Lord and he just doesn't get it and looks at her like she's nuts. And she goes, Walter Frey. And he goes, Oh, game of Thrones. Yeah, I get it. Okay, fine. I, I, I love that. There's a moment where she has to pick the right nerdy reference. Right. Cause she calls him like Voldemort or something at first. Yeah. yeah. And, and he's and, just and, like, and, what? Yeah, exactly. And Ray has no idea what she's talking about. And then she turns it to Game of Thrones. He's like, "Oh yeah, GOT. I get it. I'm, I'm good. I've 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 had that moment. I've, I've I've been on both sides of that moment for sure." That um, was interesting to me because I feel like Walder Frey is the much deeper cut. So that just tells you a whole lot about Ray Burke. Well, again, it talks it talks to you about the Venn diagram that is Ryan. That if you want to talk about the person who understands the villain in Game of Thrones and the villain in one of the villains in Game of Thrones and the villain in Harry Potter. 
in a basketball movie that's cerebral that talks about the machinations of <laughs> social contract who is in the middle of that venn diagram hey how you doing i'm your host um <laughs> we rate here on the matinee sky the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars brian j rowan what do you give steven soderbergh's high flying bird three stars three okay um this is a three and a half for me uh as, as a, and, and as i say pretty much because i am the target audience for this movie i may be a target audience of one. i was about to say how how dare you not give this film four stars when they spent two million dollars making it just for you because because there are times where it's too talky that's the thing <laughs> is if you can do some cool shit with a phone and a lens coupled to it i have seen you flip the camera upside down and shoot a helicopter flying over i want some more cool shit so you get three and a half for talkie, but you lose half for not doing some cool stuff. You know, tape the phone to a ball or something. Let, let me see what you can really do. Um, but again, when, when, this is a movie when, I, will, I would fully cop to it. This is a movie that is right in my sweet spot, and I have no idea who to actually recommend it to. Um, we'll be back. Hey, listen, maybe we're wrong. Maybe you think this movie's hot garbage, or maybe you think this is the next classic thing and I'm underselling it. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, or I'm matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird on Netflix? It's on your splash page. You can find it very easily, my friends. Let me know what you think. We are going to come back right after this and talk about some other stuff. Come on back. back it's matt nick 216 he's brian j rowan i'm ryan mcneil we've been talking about high flying bird uh or, or as i like to call it venn diagram the movie um <laughs> this is the part of the show where we like to couple it up with some other movies some further reading if you will uh perhaps some watch this instead type movies um mr rowan i've been talking a lot so i'm gonna let you uh lead us off here what is a movie that somebody could watch either instead of or after they watch high flying bird what do you what do you got for us um i'm gonna say not in well maybe instead of i don't know it's this is a movie that would be a good double feature and you could only watch one of them if you wanted it's glengarry glenn ross Ooh, okay tell people about that movie i feel like that's a movie that a lot of people have kind of forgot about so glengarry glenn ross is based on the play by david mamet um it is written by david mamet the screenplay and it's directed by james foley it stars uh, everyone: Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alan Arkin, Ed Harris, Kevin Spacey, Jonathan Price, and it has the quintessential Alec Baldwin performance. The performance that I think would shape every performance that he would make after it. Um, it's from 1992, and it's basically just about a bunch of real estate salesmen who are trying not to get fired <laughs> by making sales. Um, if you've ever heard anyone ever say, always be closing, um, you know, if third prize is you're fired, that type of stuff, that all came from this movie. And it's a movie that, like High Flying Bird, takes place in, like, maybe four places, has a lot of talking, is about, like, a very specific industry that most people don't care about, <laughs> and but it still has a lot to say about society and the way people are, and it also has a lot to do, I guess both of these are sort of like anti-capitalist or anti, maybe not capitalism in its entirety, but definitely like, you know, both anti-corporate, I'd say. Yeah. And, um, 
And so this movie, everyone is trying to, to be the highest-ranking salesperson so they don't lose their jobs in this, this horrible real estate company selling, like, worthless land to people who don't want it. And it is nothing but profanity and anger and impotent, like, aging white male rage. And it's uh, it's so good. And it reminded me, again, a lot of High Flying Bird because so much of it is who's saying what to whom and what kind of look do they have on their face while they're saying it. You know, much like High Flying Bird, you've got this, you've kind of got this strange cookie at the middle of it. Like, you're not entirely sure with High Flying Bird what the play is for a long mm-hmm. time until the play is finally really revealed. Um and in Glengarry Glen Ross, they talk all the time about the leads and how there's one type of lead that's better than the rest. And it's spoken of like, you know, it's, it's almost like they're speaking about the body of Christ. They you know, hold they, them up at some point and they are literally like tied with a golden ribbon. Yes. Yeah. And yet it's like, you know, if you were to try to use that out of context, it makes no sense at all. That some, it's, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's a glowing suitcase. It's a, you know, pick the MacGuffin. That's it. It's a Maltese Falcon, the Glengarry leads. And yet, yeah, the, and so yet the movie makes you want them. Th- there's a point where Alec Baldwin literally discusses the leads with the people. And I found the quote. It's, these are the new leads. These are the Glengarry leads. And to you, they're gold. And you don't get them. Why? Because to give them to you is just throwing them away. They're for closers. Yeah. It's this whole system of like, you have to be really good to get the leads that are actually going to sell. And it's almost impossible to be good with the leads that we're going to give you. Yeah. And um, find a way, otherwise you're fired. Yeah, pretty much. No, that is a movie. um, That's a movie that's held up really well. I can't remember the last time I saw it, but I, but I know that the script is still sparkling. I mean, it doesn't help. Doesn't, doesn't hurt. That's based on a play that uh, that Mamet wrote the play and Mamet wrote the screenplay. Um, that is that's a good one. Yeah, that would be a good one for this for sure. Um, either in lieu of or after. Um, the first one that I thought of when I came to this movie. So this is one of those weird little behind the scenes stories. Is Steven Soderbergh directed this movie? It's maybe about pro sports and the business behind pro sports, and it constantly keeps cutting to interviews with actual athletes and i thought to myself this seems familiar why and then it finally hit me like two-thirds of the way through the movie this is precisely what steven soderbergh wanted to do with moneyball he wanted it to be about the business he wanted to have interviews with players and interviews with things and have it be this kind of quasi doc or, 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 you know, like, like based on real events kind of thing. And Moneyball is a movie I have a weird relationship with because somewhat notoriously my first reaction to that movie and very much is still is this movie is not good. If you do not know the story of Moneyball and how the Oakland A's competed in an unfair market, you're going to be drawn in by the actual narrative. If you already know that, as I do, because I'm a sports fan and whatnot, you're watching the actual film and the filmmaking in Moneyball is like this close to being good, but it's not 
a Steven Soderbergh production. It's not a David Fincher production. It's as much as I like Bennett Miller. Like I like Foxcatcher a lot. I love Capote. It's one of my favorite movies of, of that decade, but he's not executing on a level that Soderbergh and Fincher and those kind of guys can execute, especially when it's a movie that's so damn talky that seeing this movie is, I'm like, Oh, this is what Moneyball was supposed to be. So this would be my kind of watch it is that Moneyball is much more A to B. Moneyball is much more how's the ragtag team going to win? And spoiler alert, they do. Mm-hmm. This is much more um, cerebral in a way that Soderbergh's movies tend to be cerebral. Uh, what other movies do you have as good other sides to go along with uh, High Flying Bird? So the other one that I had was Side Effects. Ooh. Um, just to show a little bit of like Steven Soderbergh, like having fun. Like this movie has a like again, it 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 ends on a book, and that book I think is like Steven Soderbergh, like ending the class and saying, "All right, remember the required reading. You know, I'll <laughs> see you back here next week for the test." And um, you know, it's just weird. Like when a movie ends with, in the way that it does, the that High Flying Bird does, you get the feeling that like. Again, you know, it's all been leading up to this. And when someone says to the camera, like, you've got to read this book, it's like, all right, you know, but like, but it was a movie. Like, I was watching a movie. I don't, (laughs) come on. I don't want to do homework. I know that it's important, but like, maybe you should have made all the points that you wanted to make in the movie. And like, I know that the book might have been like important to the conception of the movie, but like, maybe like, just make a title card at the end. It's like, thanks, Dr. Edwards, for writing this book. But um, side effects is Steven Soderbergh just saying, like, I want to do some Hitchcock nonsense and I want to make it look real cool and um, I want some lesbians. And it's, uh, it, like, it's just fun. It's like a super fun, pulpy as hell, just crazy movie. And I, I remember watching it in theaters. It, it was coming slightly after Contagion, so I thought it might be, like, a legitimate insight, like, into the the psychotherapy like psychiatric drugs and stuff like that and then when you realize that it's just it's like Hitchcock with more sex and blood it's um it was it was an awesome find and it it maintains a little bit of his weird kind of like wide lens close-ups that he does in this movie like you know interesting angles like looking at real places but through a literal lens that makes them seem a little alien. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a Soderbergh lover and you see this movie and you're like, man, I love that style, but I just like, don't know about having to listen to all this talking about this thing that I don't really care about, then pop in side effects and get ready to have your mind blown. I think about this movie and I think about the fact that, uh, we did a matinee cast about it, uh, which was either just before or just after, Burt Wonderstone. So, uh, you know, that's, it's uh, taking me back once again. Um, I also remember how this movie arrived and Soderbergh was talking about how he was done. Um, like this was going to be his last film and we all actually, a lot of us bought it. We're like, Oh, well it's, it's unfortunate. Why do we, why do we ever believe that from him anymore? Well, I mean, he made a convincing point. He was trying, he was starting to say that, the landscape of film was changing like the landscape of presentation was changing and the the screens were getting dominated by franchises and this before things really 
took a turn in that respect, you know, over the next six years it would follow. Um, and that the kind of movies he was interested in making weren't making money. But meanwhile, the kind of stories he wanted to tell were just all over HBO and AMC and Showtime and those kinds of places. So he wanted mm. to take his act somewhere else. And it's no small accident that right after this movie, he went and did the Nick for Cinemax with Andre Holland. See, I brought it all back. And he did um, Behind the Candelabra for HBO. He did. That's right. Um, actually that was, that was that year was, was Candelabra was, uh, I mean, it was still a movie. It was, I think that one was like three hours, but it was on TV. He's like, I'm not worried about this thing trying to make money in a theater because it's not gonna, but HBO can put this on on a long weekend and it'll be a ratings draw and it'll probably win awards, which it did. And, and he decided to come back to it. But uh, side effects though, I think the one thing I dig about it was, he was cool going out with something that looks really handsome and heady on the outside, but on the inside is really just trashy in a De Palma kind of way. Oh, yeah. You know? So that's the thing. This, this is a really great bait and switch that for a minute seemed like it was going to be his last movie. It's like he handed you a box from Tiffany's and you're like, oh, Steven. And then he says, shh, open it. And then you open it, and it's like a fried mozzarella cheese stick. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, this is even better. <laughs> you are great at the analogies. Look at that. Holy jeez. Thank you. <laughs> um, very nice. Yeah, no, that, that, would be a, that would be a good one to go on to uh, after, after High Flying Bird, for sure. I mean, it's crazy, because the one Soderbergh movie I thought about after High Flying Bird, uh, and I can't believe I'm saying this, was The Girlfriend Experience interesting because i did not like that movie at all (laughs) at all at all at all but i mean it's been 10 years so maybe my sensibility has changed and maybe it's time to go back and see if i was wrong i don't really wanna i want to believe that i got it right the first time um but the look of this and the way that it's just conversation after conversation after conversation after conversation makes me think about that movie again and think, oh, well, if this did it for me, maybe that'll do it for me. But I want to believe that, you know, it was the sports that was pulling me through this, not the high-class escort. Um, But you actually mentioned the other movie that I thought about earlier, and it would also be a good pairing with even um, Glengarry Glenn Ross, is I think a good movie to go to after High Flying Bird, um, perhaps in a this-movie-did-it-better type of way, is in fact margin call by yeah jc chandor is he the one doing triple frontier he is the one doing triple frontier he did uh he did a most violent year um which is an incredible movie if you've never seen that he did all's lost he did margin call he as far as i'm concerned the guy hasn't done a bad movie yet but margin call is really again this nuts and bolts of what's happening type movie this time in uh, relation to the um, financial collapse of 2007-2008. And it's a movie that talks about how something happens without really holding your hand the way that a movie like Big Short would happen and gets deep into how it's going to affect a lot of people in a room, everybody from the very top person to, like, you know, 
the janitor who happens to clean the office and is it's incredibly talky. And there's a lot of times where the conversation's sailing over our heads told by Kevin Spacey and Paul Bettany and Jeremy Irons and Zachary Quinto again. Um, and Demi Moore in one of her last really great roles in Stanley Tucci. Um, it's a movie that I feel like it, I mean, it was nominated for an Oscar. It was nominated for an Oscar for its script. And that was how I happened to see it. Otherwise I wouldn't have even looked at it twice, but it's a movie that is so smart and so sharp and does a whole lot with very little. Cause it's not a long movie. It's like, it's a little over a hundred minutes, but mm-hmm. gets in, gets out, takes something really complicated and makes it really, really sharp and poignant and does just such an amazing job of it and just executes on every level. Um, so that's the thing I, 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 you know, while I do admittedly come down in the tank of high flying bird, I would have to sit here and say, yeah, but it's no margin call. Yeah, no margin call is a fantastic movie. Um, that's one of those ones that, uh, is a, it's got, it's got someone in it. That's excommunicado now, right? Space. Kevin Spacey. Yeah. <laughs> But don't there's let always, him there's always one in the net. Like now it's now it's happening often enough that there's there's always someone, you know? It's kinda there's like the a, other day, I, I'm a comic book nerd and it's kinda like the other day I realized I really can't watch Superman Returns anymore because along with it being a Kevin Spacey movie, it's also a Brian Singer movie, so I really have no idea of why I'm gonna put it on a, anymore. Just imagine what their like, you know, trailer conversations were like. Yeah, yeah, no shit. <laughs> That's so a what dark... did you do today? I don't know. What did you do today? <laughs> <laughs> That's a dark true detective like scenario. Very... There's um a movie podcast called Blank Check and they love um credits like the you know, it's uh you know, who gets the first billing, who gets second building, who's on like a double card, who gets the with, who gets the and and there was a point when they said, you know, it'd be funny if there was a but, you know? And um <laughs> And then that was like right around the time that like, you know, Me Too and everything exploded. And so on the next episode, they said, shout out to the fan who said that butt should be everyone who's caught up in the Me Too movement. Yeah. So it's like L.A. Confidential, you know, Russell Crowe, Kim Basinger, Guy Pierce, but Kevin Spacey. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't be laughing. I really shouldn't. But in the meantime, that is pretty damn good. You got to um, yeah, like you're a fan of this movie as well, obviously. Yes, I am. Yeah. Um, which is funny because I really liked it, but for some reason I haven't followed J.C. Chandor in the same way that I've followed like David Lowry or S. Craig Zoller or any of these other char- like characters, any of these other directors who burst onto the scene, and I'm like, well, I'm your boy now. Like I'm going to follow you forever. Um, um, I mean, it's weird. I gotta. I, I, should, I think uh, part of it is he's still so new, right? Like he's got, he's, 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 he's only been around for like margin call was 2011. Um, he yeah, but did, I mean, well, here's Lowry's the, not, no, I well, think... Lowry's been around like Lowry's been a little bit more prolific. Cause I mean, here's the kind of crazy thing. I don't know if he was doing some other project in between. Um, but he did three movies inside of four years. Cause, and then I don't know where the heck he went, but triple frontier is this year, yeah. you know, what, maybe that's, what, I don't know what he was doing for five years. Maybe that's my problem. Maybe it's that he was like, he came so hot and then he kind of left because Ain't Them Body Saints was 2013. Pete's Dragon was 2016. 
then a ghost story was 2017, and then the old man and the gun was 2018. So Lavery's spread it out a bit. Yeah, just a little bit more. And then uh, the same... You know, speaking of things that have happened in the interim of your appearances on the show, just because you went there, uh, where did you come down on Pete's Dragon? Oh, I loved Pete's Dragon. Okay, good. Me too. Pete's Dragon was so good. Look at that. We agree. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess that's the point is there's a lot of movies that make what should seem really boring and, let's be honest, really elitist because a lot of these characters are much, much richer than the average filmgoer. Um, Mm -hmm. they find a way to talk about these things in a way that still makes them seem dramatic, still makes them seem engaging and still makes you care because if you were waiting behind one of these jokers, whether it was an agent from high flying bird or a real estate agent from, from Glengarry Glen Ross, if you were waiting behind them in a Starbucks line, you'd probably tell them to shut up and get off their Bluetooth. Please stop cursing. I have my daughter with me. (laughs) Exactly. That's Um, the weird thing, though, is that for some reason, like Margin Call, The Big Short, um, and even even Glengarry Glen Ross just feel a little more universal than High Flying Bird. And I just think that it's because, like, all of the, the other three movies are all about, like, screwing over everyone below those people. Mm-hmm. And um, that's us, you know, the big short, like you're following around all these high powered brokers and everything, but you know, the people who are going to suffer at the end are the homeowners. Right. And, you know, Glengarry Glen Ross, the people that they're harassing are just normal people. And in High Flying Bird, it's like, but the people that you're trying to liberate are people that are getting multi-million dollar contracts. And so there's still like a part of my brain that's like, they can't, they can't. they're making they- so much money. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, and the you know, movie... th- there's there's that, but I mean, there you you say that, and you you realize that their whole calling is gonna be done by the time they turn age thirty four. You know, yeah. LeBron James is thirty four years old, and they're saying that he's on his downslope, like that he'll yeah. be done in this game in four years. And you consider how big of a star that, that he is a one word enterprise who is almost done. And has not even turned 35. That's a little bit bananas that he's now going to need to figure out what the next act of his life is going to be. And oh yeah, the next act of his life is at least 30, as many as 70 years to go. Yeah. You know, it's nuts. It's, it's really nuts. weird. I mean, it's true. Like, it, it's true that like it's, it's a short-term lifestyle, but there, there, there's a part of me that's like, okay, let's uh, assume that they make X amount of money per year. For those many years, and then let's extrapolate like what my entire lifetime gross is well, going to yes. be. Yes. And so, again, like you know, the the I I stopped watching the show, and I'm almost certain that the appeal of it to me never really came to fruition. But Ballers was interesting in that way because it did grapple with that idea of like, you know, you're not Warren Buffett. You're not going to continue making millions of dollars into your 70s. You can't buy a boat. Like no, no. And I mean, you know, that that is the one thing that High Flying Bird underlines is yeah each one of these nba teams has 15 guys on it that make at a minimum six figures and at its maximum somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 million dollars a year but yet there are companies or sometimes just one dude who can afford to pay all of that and still make a profit 
Well, uh, what's his name? Robert Kraft, who was in the news today yeah. for bad reasons. Yeah. Apparently yeah. is worth $6.6 billion, billion or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. So, like, we, it's a whole other show, but that's the thing. It's, it's, it's fascinating that, it's fascinating that this just is a thing, you know, and that, and that there are things within the thing that still make enough to make a movie out of. And then there's yeah, one guy in the middle of it all, like me, who wants to see it. <laughs> and that's what the movie says. You know, they, there's this game and we're good at that game, but then they built a game on top of the game, game that we're not good at. Yeah. And I, and I love that line so much. Bill Duke. Indeed. That is it for episode 216 of the matinee cast. I'd love to thank Brian J. Rowan for coming by. Come on back on Monday, March 11th. I am super excited, folks. It is time to finally discuss Captain Marvel. And if that episode gets in below two hours, then I've just run out of things to say. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Rowan is, of course, on the Film Stage podcast. Our next show is the Film Stage Show Awards. Ooh. <laughs> we, um... We got tired of, you know, the Oscars and the Independent Spirit Awards and the Gotham Awards and all that. So we made our own awards show to give, uh, you know, laud to the things that we felt really deserved it. So we have a bunch of crazy. We came up with these awards when we were literally drunk and we podcast them drunk. Um, so it's like the the man's best friend award for best benevolent animal. The Law of the Nature Award for the Most Malevolent Animal. There's the Award for the Worst Accent. There's the Award for the Best Needle Drop. It's it's a bunch of dumb <laughs> shit like that, but it's always a good time. Um, nice. We we also just recorded an episode on Alita Battle Angel, and then we did a classic review on uh, Denzel Washington starring uh, Devil in a Blue Dress. Oh, man. You guys, you guys got some deep cuts. I like this. I should just get all of you on for... for uh... The other side. You could probably turn it into a whole other show. Um, and if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on every single social media network at Brian J. Rowan. And uh, the film stage also has a. Uh, does the show also have a Twitter feed of its own? The show does. It is at Film Stage Show. Very nice. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, and the iTunes store. Uh, also, Pocket Cast and Stitcher Radio. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on High Flying Bird or any of the films that we talked about today can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email me, ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, buddy? Um, <laughs> I was just thinking how funny it would be if I just shouted the two curse words you told me I couldn't use. Um, but no, I, uh, no, I was so happy to be back. I was really happy you asked me to be here. I've forgotten how nice it is to be on someone else's show. <laughs> I love not doing work. It's kind of nice, isn't it? Low impact. I love it. <laughs> For Brian, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.